The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. to another episode of This Week in Creepy History. I'm your host, Chris Chavez, and this is the show in which we take a look at the upcoming week and talk about what happened in the past. This week, I'm covering May 16th to May 22nd, so let's get right into it, Creepers. No messing about. May 16th, 2002. The remains of Daniel Pearl, an American journalist who had been kidnapped and later beheaded earlier in the year by Pakistani terrorists, are found buried along with an identifying jacket in a shallow grave at Gadup, about 30 miles north of Karachi. According to Time.com, Pearl was working as the South Asia bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal based in Mumbai, India. He was kidnapped when he went to Pakistan as part of an investigation into the alleged links between British citizen Richard Reid, known as the Shoe Bomber, and Al-Qaeda. So when this happened, America was still dealing with the PTSD of September 11th. All of a sudden, some dude tries to blow up a plane with his shoes and air travel is forever changed. Then, an American journalist is kidnapped and beheaded. A month later, the video of his murder is released. And because of 9-11, the 24-hour news cycle is running at a fever pitch. It was like the world was coming to an end. The men who were responsible would eventually end up getting caught. However, the drama doesn't end there. Apparently, as recent as last year... The High Court of Pakistan's southern province of Sindh vacated the conviction, and a number of court proceedings up to March of this year have all resulted in the men pretty much being let off the hook. So one of the things that I didn't realize was that Daniel Pearl was actually the one investigating this shoe bomber thing. And the shoe bomber thing, like everybody in America knows about the shoe bomber because it's because of this guy. Uh, we have to take off our shoes whenever we get on a plane now. So this was um also remember this this whole thing going on with the Pearl family trying to get his release, and then they you know announced that they had ended up beheading him, which was definitely horrible, horrible, horrible time. All right, let's go on to something a little bit lighter. May sixteenth, eighteen sixty six. Pharmacist Charles Elmer Hires invents Hires Root Beer. Would you like to have a sip on my Hires Root Beer? I think I love you. Mm. <laughs> Hires is super stupendous, delicious, nutritious, break in your day. I think I love you. Mm. <laughs> Hires Root Beer, unique in each and every way. Come on, don't you think? As someone who did not drink, he initially marketed the beverage as Root However, a friend of his convinced him to change the name to Root Beer in order to attract the working class. According to the Encyclopedia of Greater Philadelphia, the drink was slow to catch on, but Hires was persuaded to present his product at the 1876 U.S. Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. To make it stand out, he called his drink, quote, the temperance drink and the greatest health-giving beverage in the world. Soon after, business flourished and Hires opened a factory in the city. It wasn't all sunny days and root beer floats for hires, though. 
For a while there, the Women's Christian Temperance Union encouraged folks to boycott due to an analysis of the drink finding that there was alcohol in the root beer. Hires wasn't having any of their nonsense and had his own analysis done. He stated the amount of alcohol that the root beer yielded was the same as the amount in half of a loaf of bread. Now I have to say, I am a fan of root beer. I've had all the major ones, A&W, Barks, Hires, uh, Mug, but I haven't had Dad's. Creepers, let me know if that's something I need to check out. Not that I'm a root beer connoisseur or anything, but I do, you know, I do enjoy myself a nice little mug of root beer. So if Dad's is worth it, I'll go and purchase some and check it out. Let me know. All right, on to May 17th, 1961. After the failed attack on Cuba at the Bay of Pigs, the United States attempted to negotiate the release of hundreds of brigadistas who were being held by Fidel Castro's regime. Seeing that he had the U.S. at his mercy, Castro seized the moment to name his terms for the release of the POWs. He wanted... 500 tractors. I like to imagine this moment playing out like the scene in Austin Powers where Dr. Evil first demands $1 million from world leaders, and they, like he literally realizes later that that's, that amount of money is nothing, right? Uh, Castro realized his error and would end up raising the demands to $28 million U.S. million. By December of 1962, the two countries would agree to $53 million in food and medicine, which were raised through private donations and corporate sponsorships. Oof, imagine trying to be the guy that had to tell Castro that 500 tractors made him look like an asshole. Let's go to May 17th, 1824. The greatest crime in literary history occurred at the home of Scottish publisher John Murray. At the time, Murray had in his possession the memoirs of the English poet Lord Byron, which had been sold to him by poet Thomas More, who in turn had gotten the manuscript from Lord Byron himself. A month after the death of the famous poet, a number of his friends gathered at Murray's home to debate the fate of the memoirs, with many of them feeling that some of the details of Byron's life would not reflect so well on him. Some felt it was too sexually explicit for the public. Others thought the memoirs should be published and that Byron would have wanted it so. Unfortunately, cooler heads did not prevail, and the memoirs were torn to pieces and tossed into Murray's roaring fire. The details of one of literature's greatest poets would be lost to history forever. For creepers who may not remember why we should remember the name of Lord Byron, the author of Don Juan was also one of the poets who spent three days away at a retreat in Switzerland with his friends Percy and Mary Shelley, the same three days in which Mary would come up with her story of Frankenstein. Okay, May 18th, 1971. The body of 33-year-old Calgary, Alberta high school teacher Elizabeth Ann Porteous is found on her bedroom floor by her apartment manager after she failed to show up for work that morning. She had been raped and murdered, and her breasts had been mutilated with bite marks. Investigators feared that she was the victim of a serial killer known as the Vampire Rapist, as the state of her apartment and the body matched a number of other murders that were under investigation at the time. According to Wikipedia, amid the wreckage, police recovered a broken cufflink under the victim's body. In their investigation of the murder, the police were able to find out from two of her colleagues that she had been seen at a stoplight riding in a blue Mercedes-Benz on the night she died. The car was reported to have a distinctive advertising bull-shaped decal in the rear window. A friend of the victim also informed police that she had been recently dating a man named Bill, described as a flashy dresser with neat, short hair. The following day, on May 19th, the blue Mercedes was spotted by a patrolman parked near the murder scene. Wayne Clifford Bowden, a former fashion model, was arrested half an hour later as he went to his car. He told the police that he moved from Montreal a previous year and admitted that he had been dating Porteous and was with her on the night of her murder. 
When the broken cufflink was presented to him, he admitted its ownership. However, he insisted that Porteus was fine when he left her that night. The police in Calgary were in possession of a copy of the photograph recovered from another victim's apartment, and, as Bowden resembled the man in the picture, they held him for suspicion in murdering Porteus. Police then turned their attention to the marks on the victim's breasts. Dental records would prove Bowden was the man behind the murders. He would be the first murderer to be convicted in North America based on dental evidence. It's wild, right? Like some, The more technology advances, the harder it is to get away with things. Back then, people didn't know their DNA. Their dental records would be the key to solving some of these cases. So like they were literally just like shooting it everywhere, like shooting DNA everywhere, spitting everywhere, biting things. Nobody cared because there was no such thing as DNA evidence to catch them. So a lot of these people thought they got away with stuff. And a lot of them did until we got this technology. But this technology has literally been catching criminals left and right. So keep your eye open. Who knows what happens tomorrow? May 18th, 1953. At the age of 48, American pilot and business executive Jacqueline Cochran becomes the first woman to break the sound barrier. Setting numerous records, Cochran is considered a pioneer of women's aviation and was one of the most prominent racing pilots of her generation. During the research for this, I found that Jacqueline Cochran is a huge figure in aviation history. Aside from setting a number of speed, distance, and altitude records, and her exemplary service during World War II, she was instrumental in lobbying Eleanor Roosevelt to introduce a proposal for a women's flying division in the Army Air Forces. This led to the creation of Women Air Force Service Pilots. She was also a sponsor of the Mercury 13 program, an early effort to test the ability of women to be astronauts. So there you go, Creepers, another badass woman doing her thing. And now for an example of men doing their thing and holding women down. May 19th, 1536. Anne Boleyn, Queen of England and second wife of Henry VIII, is executed by beheading at the Tower of London for treason, adultery, and incest. So if you don't know the story of King Henry VIII, this dude couldn't figure out who he wanted as a wife. First, he marries Catherine of Aragon, who was originally the princess, uh, the princess of Wales and married to Henry's older brother. Anne Boleyn was part of the wedding party as a maid of honor. And after a minute, Henry was like, Catherine's getting boring. Let me see what else is out there. So he starts pursuing Anne Boleyn. After a bunch of failed attempts at annulling his first marriage, Henry decides he's going to step over the laws of the Catholic Church and marry Anne anyway. After a few years and a baby, the future Queen Elizabeth I, Henry becomes enraptured with Jane Seymour and needs to get out of his marriage with Anne Boleyn. Ghosting baby mamas isn't easy when you're the king, so he had to come up with a way to have Anne arrested and put to death. Historians pretty much agree it was all bullshit, and he basically had Anne murdered so he could get with Jane. Oh, man. It's a tale as old as time. May 19th, 1992. Oh, I remember this. Dan Quayle blames Murphy Brown for the decline of American family values. So the following is from a September 2018 Washington Post article by Jillian Brockle about a planned Murphy Brown reboot. Quote, on May 19, 1992, the campaign for President George H.W. Bush's re-election was heating up while the fires of the Los Angeles riots were cooling down. Vice President Dan Quayle was in San Francisco to deliver a speech at the nonpartisan Commonwealth Club of California. Quayle began by acknowledging the riots that had raged downstate only a few weeks earlier after the acquittal of police officers caught on video beating Rodney King. First, he made clear that only rioters are to blame for riots, but he added that there was a, quote, underlying situation, the breakdown of the traditional family structure and the narcotics of welfare. 
For the vast majority of the 3,000-word speech, he explained his view that a poverty mindset is what held back mostly black urban residents. And then, toward the end, Quayle added, It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. The night before, 38 million viewers had watched the season finale of the hit show as acerbic, unmarried journalist Murphy Brown, played by actress Candace Bergen, gave birth and tenderly sang Natural Woman to her newborn son. So with Quayle's single sentence, a speech primarily about black poverty was forever dubbed the Murphy Brown speech. Reaction was swift. Later that day, President Bush was hammered with Murphy Brown questions at an event with the Prime Minister of Canada, according to the New York Times. Diane English, the show's creator, issued a brief statement saying, quote, If the vice president thinks it's disgraceful for an unmarried woman to bear a child, and he believes that a woman cannot adequately raise a child without a father, then he better make sure abortion remains safe and legal. Yeah, I remember this being a big deal politically. It was a big deal in pop culture. It was one of these other things to make fun of Dan Quayle about that he was kind of, you know, had no clue what was going on. It was also one of these things that to a younger generation made Bush and Quayle seem completely disconnected from the times. I mean, well, that and the fact that he couldn't spell potatoes. All righty, May 20th, 1927. At 7.52 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the spirit of St. Louis lifts off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island, New York, piloted by Charles Lindbergh on a flight that would go down in history books as the first nonstop flight across Atlantic Ocean. So according to History.com, on the night of May 19th, nerves and a newspaper man's noisy poker game kept him up all night. Early the next morning, though he hadn't slept, the skies were clear and Lindbergh rushed to the Roosevelt Field on Long Island. Six men had died attempting the long and dangerous flight he was about to take, and he was about to do it on little sleep. After takeoff, Lindbergh traveled northeast up the coast. After only four hours, he felt tired and flew within 10 feet of the water to keep his mind clear. As night fell, the aircraft left the coast of Newfoundland and set off across the Atlantic. At about 2 a.m. on May 21st, Lindbergh passed the halfway mark, and an hour later, dawn came. Soon after, the spirit of St. Louis entered a fog, and Lindbergh struggled to stay awake, holding his eyelids open with his fingers and hallucinating that ghosts were passing through the cockpit. After 24 hours in the air, he felt a little more awake and spotted fishing boats in the water. At about 11 a.m., he saw the coast of Ireland. Despite using only rudimentary navigation, he was two hours ahead of schedule and only three miles off course. He flew past England and by 3 p.m. was flying over France. At the Le Bourget Aerodrome in Paris, tens of thousands of Saturday night revelers had gathered to await Lindbergh's arrival. At 10.22 p.m. local time, his gray and white monoplane slipped out of the darkness and made a perfect landing in the airfield. The crowd surged on the spirit of St. Louis and Lindbergh, weary from his 33-and-a-half-hour 3,600-mile journey was cheered and lifted above their heads. He hadn't slept for 55 hours. Two French aviators saved Lindbergh from the boisterous crowd, whisking him away in an automobile. He was an immediate international celebrity. Man, back in those days, it always seems like such a romantic time, fantastical, like a time when people were constantly challenging themselves to set records and then break them, to dive headfirst into the unknown, fearless trailblazers, right? And now we have TikTok dances and Twitter feuds. Go figure. May 20th, 1983. 
The single, Every Breath You Take, by the police is released on A&M Records. Off of their album, Synchronicity, <laughs> there's that word again, the song will go on to become the biggest U.S. and Canadian hit of the year and is considered the band's signature song. Okay, so this song was always funny to me because so many people use this song for wedding dances and formal dances because it always sounds nice and romantic, but the words are creepy as fuck, man. If you really listen to it, this dude is a legit stalker, just like doesn't care what this woman says or does, he's going to follow her. No matter what she's doing, he's going to be watching her, every move she makes, and you know, at some point, he's going to have her, you know? Definitely, when you listen to the lyrics, it's super creepy. And I remember, it was probably in my 20s, where I really started to pay attention to it. And I was like, whoa, this is not like this is not normal. You should not be playing this song at a wedding. Anyway, we're on the final stretch. Last couple of days. Let's do this. May 21st, 1924. 19-year-old Nathan Leopold and 18-year-old Richard Loeb kidnap and murder 14-year-old Robert Bobby Franks, the son of a wealthy Chicago watch manufacturer. The pair had planned for seven months, determined to ensure that they would be able to commit the perfect crime. Their motive? They wanted to prove their superior intellect. According to the book, For the Thrill of It, by Simon Batts, Leopold and Loeb only knew each other casually while growing up, but would begin to see more of each other in mid-1920 as their friendship flourished at the University of Chicago, particularly after they discovered a mutual interest in crime. Leopold was fascinated by Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of supermen, interpreting them as transcendent individuals possessing extraordinary and unusual capabilities, whose superior intellects allowed them to rise above the laws and rules that bound the unimportant average populace. Leopold believed that he, and especially Loeb, were these individuals, and as such, by his interpretation of Nietzsche's doctrines, they were not bound by any of society's normal ethics or rules. In a letter to Loeb, Leopold wrote, quote, a superman is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do. The pair began asserting their perceived immunity from the normal restriction with acts of petty theft and vandalism. Breaking into a fraternity house at the University of Michigan, they stole pen knives, a camera, and a typewriter, one that they would later use to type their ransom note. Emboldened, they progressed to a series of more serious crimes, including arson, but no one seemed to notice. Disappointed with the absence of media coverage of their crimes, they decided to plan and execute a sensational, quote, perfect crime that would garner public attention and confirm their self-perceived status as supermen. Now, I'm not going to go too much farther into this story because we'll be covering it here very soon on an upcoming episode of History Creeps. But this is definitely something super disturbing. And I didn't real I had never heard of this until doing research for this episode. So uh, I'm so bought into this and we'll be presenting this here very soon in the near future. So now let's move on. We've been talking planes and pilots. Let's keep going that way. May 21st, 1932, after flying for 17 hours from Newfoundland, Amelia Earhart lands near Londonderry, Northern Ireland, becoming the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic. So we discussed Amelia Earhart on the show before. One of our earlier episodes focused on her mysterious disappearance and the theories around what happened to her. Again, this was a time when these types of feats made headline news. Kids around the world, little girls especially, looked up to Amelia Earhart, finding inspiration in her wondrous accomplishments. Sometimes it feels like those days are over. But then I remember people like Felix Baumgartner. You creepers remember him? He was the dude that literally performed a deadfall from the edge of space a few years ago. 
I say a few years ago, like it was like two years ago. It was like almost 10 years ago, I think. I can't remember now. But he stepped off a platform from a hot air balloon. I think it was like sponsored by Red Bull. The thing went all the way up to the very edge of space. He had this camera on his helmet, and it was being live streamed, and the dude just drops. And he, I believe, I'm almost positive he broke the sound barrier on a deadfall as well. Uh, I'd have to double check that. Um, but yeah, dude, check it out. You can actually see that deadfall on YouTube. It's pretty sweet. All right, let's finish the week, kiddies. May 22nd, 1915. Lassen Peak erupts after months of steam explosions and is the only mountain other than Mount St. Helens to erupt in the continental U.S. during the 20th century. According to the United States Geological Survey's website, on May 30th, 1914, Lassen Peak awoke from a 27,000-year-long slumber when it was shaken by a steam explosion. That first explosion created a small crater at the summit of Lassen Peak, and each of more than 180 subsequent steam explosions enlarged it. Over more than 11 months, these steam explosions continued to blast the crater 1,000 feet across. In mid-May 1915, the character of the eruption changed dramatically. On May 14th, the night before, incandescent blocks of lava could be seen bouncing down the flanks of Lassen Peak from as far away as Manton, 20 miles to the west. By the next morning, a growing lava dome had filled the crater at the summit of Lassen Peak. After two quiet days, Lassen Peak exploded in a powerful eruption at about 4 p.m. in the afternoon of May 22nd. That blast hurled rock fragments and pumice high into the air and created the larger and deeper of the two craters seen today near the summit. Over the next 30 minutes, a huge column of volcanic ash and gas rose more than 30,000 feet into the air. It was visible from as far away as Eureka, California, 150 miles to the west. Still, the total volume of the 1915 eruptions was tiny compared to the major eruption that took place at Mount St. Helens in 1980. And that, as well, is going to be a future History Creeps episode. So let's finish it up, guys. The final entry, here we go. May 22nd, 1955. For our basketball fans out there, and Johnny, if you're listening, the NBA's newest expansion city, Toronto, unveils their newest team's name and logo, the Raptors. So I didn't know this, but Toronto had a team back in the 40s called the Huskies. When the NBA granted the city the expansion in 93, the initial expectation was that Huskies' name would be revived. Management, though, thought it would be more difficult to design a logo that wouldn't get confused with the already existing canine logo of the Minnesota Timberwolves, so they decided to come up with something completely different. A nationwide contest was held to help name the team and develop the colors and logo. Over 2,000 entries were narrowed down to the 11 potential prospects. Here we go. Toronto if not named the Raptors, could have been the Beavers, the Bobcats, which I think ends up being taken anyway, the Dragons, the Grizzlies, again taken, Hogs, the Scorpions, the Tarantulas, the Terriers, the Towers, and yes, T-Rex, the Toronto T-Rex. Can you imagine if they had just gone with the T-Rex? That just sounds strange, man. The Toronto T-Rex. The name of the team, the Raptors, was announced on Canadian national television. The recent popularity of the film Jurassic Park was credited with its choosing. And the rest was history. So there you have it, Creepers. Your week in creepy history. 
Hope you enjoyed it. Before we head out, remember to check out the website, BICBP-radio.com. Check out some of the other shows on the network. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate this. Again, you know, I'm going to do my best to keep getting these out as early as possible this week once again. It is what it is, but we got one for you. Uh, we also have How Bizarre coming out later this week. Oh, one of the things I did want to tell you guys. So Creepers, again, our shows are sometimes coming out on this day or that day. We're a day late, a day behind. That changes this week. Our main shows, History Creeps, That's Odd, How Bizarre, those are going to come out every Friday moving forward. We have a set release date, so keep your ears, eyes open, check your podcast apps. Every Friday, you will have a new episode of History Creeps, That's Odd, How Bizarre, and whatever else we decide we want to create and throw your way. So uh, thanks again so much for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. If you're so inclined and want to check it out, head over to patreon.com slash historycreeps. Join the Creeper Clubhouse. Get in on some of the new stuff that's out there. We have a, a whole bunch that's dropping this month that was kind of left over from last month. So check it out, patreon.com slash historycreeps. And now I am ready to get out of here. I'm shutting those windows. I'm about to lock the door. Hope you guys have a good night, and I'll see you guys next week. Stay creepy. Stay creepy.